Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm Paul Anderson. Thanks for joining us. Today on our show, we'll discuss George Saunders' brand new novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, and Greg Wolf sits down with Gina Oshner, author of The Hidden Letters of Velta B, to discuss the power of fairy tales. George Saunders is best known for his short stories. His collections, Civil War Land and Bad Decline, Pastoralia, and The Tenth of December, have earned him a reputation as a rule-breaking literary trickster with a keen awareness for the tender human core of each of his strange characters. And now, he's written a novel about Abraham Lincoln and ghosts. He was interviewed by Vox.com in March and was asked to speak on art's function in the current political climate. He says, If you start by saying what art should do, Pretty soon you're saying what art must do. And then some reactionary comes along and says, hey, your art isn't doing what you said it must do. Go to the gulag. I think art has to reserve the right to be truly useless. It can do these other wonderful things. To me, this is part of what's so fascinating about his new book. After all, it's about the president of the United States at the height of the Civil War. And yet the weight of the subject matter never bogs down the story. It's playful, tender, hilarious, and sad. In this book, Saunders follows his own command. He reserves the right for his art to be truly useless. On today's episode of The Image Podcast, that's what we'll be talking about, how art that is useless can do these other wonderful things. Here's me with Gregory Wolf, founder and editor of Image, discussing George Saunders' new book. So, Greg... What were your expectations for Lincoln and the Bardo? Well, I think like everyone else, I had very high expectations. I mean, George Saunders is a revered author. He's been publishing for a long, long time. And in fact, he's pretty much the exception to the rule in that, you know, the word in the publishing has always been short story collections are nice as a kind of trophy book after the successful right. novel. So being a... a, a primary short story writer for as long as he has been and to have gained the kind of stature and platform that he has is really amazing. So that just amped up the expectations for a book like this. Could he do it? And would it be different in tone and texture and feel from what he's done before? I think the quick answer to that is no, it's kind of similar to the way that he plays with narrative and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I think the general consensus is that he's done himself proud in this book, but it's a curious one and one I'm, I'm eager to kind of dig into. Mm-hmm. The novel itself kind of starts out with these primary historical historical sources, or at least harder primary and actual historical from what I've read. And some of them Saunders made up himself, and there's no distinction between the two. So my first impression of the book was that it was going to be that throughout the entire book. And I was very excited by it. So that was my first impression, that it was going to be largely a historical fiction novel based on this kind of fragmented gaze of these primary sources. What were your first impressions of the book? Well, my first impressions were pretty much the opposite. Okay. <laughs> I was I was getting pretty antsy pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I get it. I get the postmodern approach that, you know really has a strong skepticism about 
the old-fashioned omniscient narrators and third-person approaches. But, you know, it felt like a collage after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's great to get these these this awareness that people see things differently, um, yet there's still a kind of human desire to try to get at the truth. And I know that that's partly what he's after. I did relent a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think I they felt a little tedious at first. It felt like a high bar of entry. Yeah. But, you know, at, after a while I began to see, I felt a kind of three-dimensionality coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get that many voices you and you hear both the human personalities and the way each of them is interpreting the, the facts differently, and here we are in a, an age of alternate facts, mm-hmm. um, that began to intrigue me. So I kind of relented a bit. And, of course, he then shifted the narrative and then began to intersperse more traditional narrative sections with right. it. So it was a little bit of an obstacle for me. In regards to those historical or ahistorical invented sources, do you think he has a responsibility as the novelist to delineate which ones are actually from real historical sources and which ones are once he's made up, or is that just, is that too, uh, too much to ask from him? Well, this, this brings up a whole huge debate that we probably might devote a whole segment to sometime. It's been, been raised most directly by David Shields, uh, the nonfiction writer, um, in his recent book on uh, reality, something, forgive me for not remembering immediately where he involves, uh, includes a lot of quotations that he does not he does not source. He does not quote. He, he may not even have paid any copyright fees. Yeah, I think there's a big debate going on now, right now, about the the line between fiction and nonfiction, between what we can know and what we can't know. And definitely Saunders is playing into that, I think, in a way that's intriguing. Um, I think I'm still not fully sure what I, what I make of it, but I, I take it more not in an ideological source about uh, sense about what what you can do or not do in fiction today, but more this three-dimensional wanting to make us aware of the multiplicity of views that mm-hmm. exist, the plurality of views that exist. And it does a good job, I think, of unseating your own privileged self. He starts to pick up steam in this party scene when people realize that Willie is sick upstairs and suddenly people are recalling that the moon looked a particular way that night. And you're seeing all these different historical sources list um, their own perception of the moon. Some say the moon was not there. Some say the moon glowed like a hot coal in the sky. And you're seeing the multiplicity of these views. And for me, that was fascinating. I was, I was completely in at that point. And then immediately after, he kind of pivots into the graveyard and switches from this this mode of these primary sources into the a kind of dialogue, almost screenplay-like back and forth of these, you know, ghost characters. So what are you thinking then when we pivot from the Lincoln household to the graveyard with Willie being wheeled there um, after his death? Well, yeah, no, it's fascinating, and it's it's disconcerting at first because these voices just enter into the narrative, and you're not given right. any introduction to them. Mm-hmm. You sort of have to 
sort of just try to follow along as best you can. And then slowly you begin to right. um, get who these characters are and you get a little bit of their backstory. Right. So then there's this, there's the ghost dimension to the book, which is really fascinating. It, I obviously in the title, which invokes this Buddhist concept of the bardo, you have a, 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 a something that I suppose Catholics would call akin to purgatory, mm -hmm. a kind of transitional zone between life and death. And in very similar fashion to a kind of classical understanding of purgatory, there is there are options. Uh, these souls have chosen primarily to stay where they are in the cemetery. And you quickly realize that that's because they live in a certain form of denial mm -hmm. about what's happened. Right. They refer to their bodies in the coffins as sick forms, mm -hmm. and they refer to the coffins themselves as sick boxes. And so a lot of the beginning part of the book, you're just trying to actually understand what that means, which is good because it keeps the mystery going. And it, 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 it really kind of allows this to sort of settle into your mind in kind of waves or layers. And then it becomes, I think, a little more kind of classically purgatorial when you begin to realize that people are staying when maybe they shouldn't be staying, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it's time to move on. And so why they're staying, and then you kind of get their backstories and you you understand that each of them you know, has a reason to be confused or full of a kind of regret, um, self-recrimination or fear that is holding them. And that's where it begins to feel a little bit more like a traditional purgatorial dimension, which has a moral dimension to it, right? Where you're thinking about why are you here based on what you did and or what happened to you and how you responded to what happened to you. And so then you get this very interesting dimension. And I would say that Saunders really is a moralist. He's a moralist in the least moralistic kind of way. Right. He's, he's a moralist who knows how to kind of hide it mm -hmm. um, in the razzmatazz of narrative. But he really, at the, at the heart, he's, he's considered, he's concerned with moral questions, with mm -hmm. right and wrong and with what and allows us to flourish and what, what holds us back. And I think that's really a large part of what that whole Bardo uh, scenario is in the story. Right. I think it's really interesting that the only character in the novel who has any, I guess, preconceived notions about what afterlife might be is the Reverend character. And he's the one who is kind of, he, he meant George Saunders mentions this in his image, good letters interview. Um, that I think he's kind of a key to understanding um, Saunders' understanding or relationship to the Bardo and what he, the picture he's kind of trying to paint here. So, what did you make of of this this Christian pastor in this sort of I don't want to say Buddhist afterlife, but in this sort of ambiguous afterlife, and him being the one who's ultimately the most confused about his his status there? Well, I think it's I think it's great actually. I mean, the fact that you are Involved with a an afterlife scenario seems to maybe be religious in nature, and again, Saunders raised Catholic, as he you know has said many times, and currently Buddhist of some kind, although I think he's a little you know unclear about that at times. Has a strong uh, predilection here for the religious sensibility, but that's precisely why you kind of need to blunt that. Mm -hmm. 
um, and remind yourself and remind the reader that religion can become a pair of blinders as much as it can become a possibility of revelation. It can become escape. It can be a form of denial if you want it to be. Right. So I think that that was quite clever. I don't, I don't think he, he's not ladling on thick. He's not trying right. to, it's clearly not satirical in nature. It's just reminding us of the human fallibility of anyone who makes religion the kind of centerpiece of, of their lives. Right, right. And before we move on to Abraham, Abraham Lincoln himself, I just want to ask one more question about um, the afterlife topic of this novel. So where do you think that Saunders taking his first foray into into something that is so explicitly spiritual, where do you think he lands in the tradition of the great afterlife literature, C.S. Lewis' Great Divorce, Dante, even Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol? Well, that's right. And there have been other um, sources cited, in particular sort of in the American grain, mm -hmm. the Spoon River Anthology and Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Mm -hmm. All those, I'm sure, factor in. I mean, the book is is very Dantean in the mm -hmm. sense that many of these souls, um, in some sense, suffer, undergo a kind of um, recreation of, or they, they have a punishment or a penance that is appropriate to to either their sin, but not always to their sin. Many of them have suffered from trauma. And so it's not always about guilt in this book. It's it's about, you know, suffering and pain and mm -hmm. and the trauma that that inflicts and the difficulty, you know, because trauma creates paralysis in the soul. So the, those are what Dante called contraposto, those so sort of appropriate things. So there's a bit of that element in it's a bit like the great divorce too, where you kind of in the ante room, you're in this kind of no man's land, but you know that, you know, the reader knows that there's a need to move on to kind of choose your path. And I, so I, I, but it doesn't feel derivative to me. It, it felt like it just joined that kind of larger stream of, of kind of literary history and sure. was fresh enough and, and new enough to, to kind of pass the smell test of, of not, not just being, you know, faux Dante. Um, so I, you know, I thought it was co quite well done. So it is half ghost story and half historical fiction. Um, so does it matter that this book is about Abraham Lincoln? If there is so much about the afterlife, why couldn't he have just written about another father who's lost a son? Does it matter that this is Abraham Lincoln? What do you have to say about that? Well, I, I do think it matters. I mean, it's possible reading the narrative at times that, to lose track of the Lincoln right. narrative. Um, and, of course, there's these host of interesting characters, and some of them are, you know, obsessives who have micromanaged their children. Some of them are really crude, rude, you know, thieves and prostitutes and robbers and all that sort of thing. Um, and they become fascinating. You you begin to get attached to those characters. But I do think that the the seed of the book must have been Lincoln because mm -hmm. it is the kind of moral heart of the book, the, and certainly the emotional kind of core of the book. Right. I think, you know, it's it's fascinating to read this book in the light of our current political circumstances, yeah. and particularly in light of the current president of the United States and the way that. His character, you know, has been called into question by so many people for so many pretty obvious reasons. And then, uh, who knows? I mean, obviously, Saunders wrote this book before 
the election. I mean, he had to. So there's a kind of prophetic aspect of this that he's so fascinated in a man who almost everybody agrees, even though Lincoln wasn't perfect, he made certain bad decisions, relied on bad advice at times, had his own issues. You get a sense in the historical literature of a man of this kind of absolutely profound inner life and character. So to be reading a book that really gives you an insight into this man's emotional and moral life in the light of our own experiences is quite unsettling and, um, and, you know, disturbing in a way, but also maybe reassuring because, you know, if, if we've, if we've, if we've grown up a human being like this in the past, you know, maybe we can in the future. Mm -hmm. So then what do you think this book is ultimately about? If you could say this book is, Saunders is trying to achieve this or, um, or what did you even just take it, take away from it personally? Well, you know, I actually, I'm kind of glad that I can't summarize it too easily. I mean, we live in an era right now where, for obvious reasons, a lot of what we do, particularly in film, but also in books too, um, are basically centered on issues. Sure. And for for many of us, uh, for all of us, I would hope these issues are hugely important issues. You know, issues about you know race, about gender, about political justice, uh, about you know equality and fairness in society. What is the nature of freedom? All these things are are usually important. What worries me a little bit is that at times it feels like we have, and and some of these these issues are so belated that it's really crucial that we do face them. But the danger right now, it seems to me, is that we we have issue books and issue films. And at at some point, there's a kind of cost to that. Mm -hmm. I think a uh, a cost to the realization of, ambiguity right. and mystery in the world a tendency to toward the didactic and the nice thing to me about the saunders book is that it doesn't i don't think i can reduce it it's not sure. a political book in the traditional sense mm-hmm. even though it's about a president it's a book a book about grief mm-hmm. i mean really the emotional heart of this book is the in, intense overwhelming grief that Lincoln feels at the death of this son for many reasons we don't have time to go into but this was the one that that really hit him you know so hard that it was difficult for him to function afterwards in some respects um but I think so grief and letting go and both the goodness that makes us grieve the goodness of love that is the source of the difficulty of letting go but also the, the the need to let go. I mean, in the end, you realize he has an obligation to the living, and right. his, and namely, the pursuit of the Civil War right. and the winning of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And you begin at the very end to feel that he's you know beginning to turn his attention toward that. But I think you know what's beautiful about this book is just this portrait of of a rich inner life mm-hmm. of a human being in in an almost impossible situation. And uh, and I think that must have been the germ for him of the whole project. I don't know for sure, but I'm sure it. it, it for me, it, I could see how a whole book could grow around that that one incident. Oh, and I, I actually I do remember there is a story. It's apparently debated and maybe apocryphal that 
Lincoln went into the mausoleum, mm-hmm. opened the coffin after the death of his son, right after, mm-hmm. not not in a kind of totally macabre way long after, but right after, pulled his son out of the coffin and cradled him in his arms. Mm-hmm. I think Saunders says that that image stayed with him. It's like a pieta in right. a way. Right. Um, you think of kind of Mary cradling her dead, you know, the son uh, Christ in her arms. So that definitely had a huge role in the book. Absolutely. There's a lot going on. So I think that's everything. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything else you'd like to offer about Saunders and his and his new debut novel? No, I mean, I, as I say, I think in the end, you know, this is a book um, that while it's it deals in some scary macabre things and it has some scatological and, and <clears throat> sort of um, painful uh, stories some because some of the dead have been pr- prostitutes who are raped and really there's some the difficult things that you experience in this panoply of humanity that you get all these different characters in that sense it's almost dickensian and that you get you know everything from the worst kind of thief and prostitute to the president of the united states Mm -hmm. but you know in the end i think the book is a very moral book um and in some ways it's also simple um I, i love saunders i think you know he writes like a god um I guess if I was to maybe say something a little critical, I I love the way he says things, but sometimes I'm not sure how much he has to say. Hmm. In the end, a lot of it comes down to kindness. And yeah. I know he's he's spoken about kindness. Sure. I guess I have a predilection for maybe a little more philosophical hmm. depth and complexity to my to my fiction. Sure. But on the other hand, he's a master, it's involving, and he passed his his big test that everyone was was wondering about um, his first novel with flying colors. So he's someone who I think is is a great treasure in the national scene, and I look forward to to more from his uh, from his output. Okay, thank you, Greg. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Before we move on to our interview with Gina Oshner, I'd like to take a second to tell a story of my own about why I believe in image. This piece was published on our Good Letters blog in December, but I've unearthed it today because we've come to that time of the year where your support becomes vital. If you donate to Image already, thank you. If not, hopefully this piece will show you how far your dollars can go. Seven months ago, I was teaching writing to high school seniors at a Christian school on the southwest side of Chicago. 30 minutes from my suburban hometown, but essentially in another universe. I was three months away from finishing my MFA through Seattle Pacific University, and I wasn't sure that I was going to make it. Make it to the end of the MFA without succumbing to a mental collapse, or to the end of the teaching year without biting off a chunk of my tongue. There was no established curriculum for the class, so I created many of my lessons the night before, after I finished grading the students' assignments from the same day. While this won't kill you, Any education professional will tell you that it's a recipe for disaster. One night, between MFA and teaching work, I pulled out a copy of Image and flipped to Chris Oak's essay, Hearts Like Radios, a piece that had jolted my numbed spiritual and creative nerves a few months earlier. In the classroom, I was at a loss for what pieces of writing to put in my students' hands. They'd balked at all my favorite stuff, which in retrospect is in a surprise. They came from a different world than me, and I could not figure out a way to breach the cultural divide. I stuffed the magazine in my bag and made 50 photocopies of the essay at school the next morning. While assigning Hoke's essay in class that next day was a last-minute improvisation, 
It was above all an act of faith. The students, sharp as they were, had grown weary of my attempts to lord canonical literature over their heads like an enlightened shaman. I had to accept that my fabricated mastery of the written word would not ultimately be the thing that broke the ice around their heads. Perhaps, I thought, beauty might break through in the way that it had for me so many years before, quietly and through the back window, on little cat feet. Hoke's essay was one among many in the pages of image that nudged me toward new ways of seeing, with writing that was both gracious and bold, images and ideas that unsettled the dust in the basement of my literary mind. To assume that it couldn't do the same for those students would have been an oversight of tremendous arrogance. All I asked them to do was find the thesis. Of course they knew what a thesis was, but for months I'd been trying to convince them that a thesis is more than just a summative sentence that you drop into the essay like a fishing lure into a pond, then leave it there while you twiddle your thumbs and talk about nothing in particular. A thesis should beat like a heart. It should pump blood into every sentence of the essay, turning it into a corporeal, living thing. So I asked them, what's the heart of this essay? After ten minutes of reading, a silence settled over the room like fog. They leaned over their desks with their pens in hand, scribbling hieroglyphic notes in the margins. And then we talked about it. First, they were most struck by the characters in the story, the man in the attic of a halfway house strung out on meth, who swung a golf club around and told the narrator, Hoke, about the things God told him in the dark. Then they talked about the teenage kid who heard a voice that told him to take his father's life. The students' voices sounded notes of shock, sadness, and compassion. The notion that an essay could contain dialogue and scene and characters who reminded them of people that they'd met on street corners or on the L or in their own families was a revelation. We move forward to the most challenging part of the essay, Hoke's explication on scholarly interpretations of the Abraham and Isaac story, the first being the traditional interpretation, that God commanded Abraham to kill his son, then changed his mind at the last second, and the second, an orthodox one that the Hebrew names of God in the passage referred to separate beings, Elohim, the generic Hebrew word for a God, and then Yahweh, the self-revealed, self-breathed name of Israel's God. Hoke is suggesting that Abraham might have heard two distinct voices commanding different things, I said, tentatively. Hands shot up. What the hell? they said. What's the thesis? I asked. They looked around, pondering the air. There was a giddiness in the way they were suddenly speaking to each other, as if their unexpected passion and curiosity was surprising even to them. It was certainly a surprise to me, and one of the few small pedagogical victories I can count from that year. One girl, who wrote better essays between passing periods than I could have dreamed of writing at her age, decided to make part of Hoke's argument the thesis of her 12-page senior capstone paper. She explored the historical link between mental illness and prophecy, and argued, quite eloquently, that the people counted as prophets in the ancient world bear a striking likeness to the people who we shuttle to the margins of our society, deeming them insane. She referenced Abraham Joshua Heschel. The essay made me cry, and won her a scholarship that would cover the cost of textbooks during her first year in college. About a week later, I was offered a job at Image, and within a month I was in my Volkswagen on the way to Seattle. Most of my students went off to college. For a while, I wrestled with the nagging thought that I had taken the easy way out that working for a literary arts quarterly was to step away from the front lines, away from the written word in its most vulnerable, critical habitat, the classroom. The underlying assumption here is an arrogant one, that I was the one responsible for the way my students took to that essay like ducks to water, their feet churning madly beneath the surface. It was an accident, built on trust and an engaged understanding of who they were, 
but an accident no less. When my own tiny reservoir of passion runs dry every six months, I have to remind myself that this is how literature and beauty therein survives. Not through the Herculean efforts of an isolated few, the writers or the professors or the publishers, but through small, seemingly inconsequential moments of stewardship and trust, lending a book and hoping you never get it back, editing the work of a young and hopeful writer, supporting a literary journal that shares your vision, a handful of small good things leavening unrisen dough. These small acts of faith are responsible for the seemingly serendipitous survival of beauty, their origin stories, like Peter Parker getting bit by that spider. Every beauty lover I know has one of them, each one wildly different in plot, but animated by the same heart. Mine goes like this. In my first aimless year out of college, a mentor puts a copy of Image in my hands, mentioning a Christian Wyman essay he thinks I'd like. Three paragraphs in, a line lodges itself in my ribs like a dart. Quote, Except for that terrible, blissful feeling at the heart of creation itself, when all thought of your name is obliterated and all you want is the poem, to be the means wherein something of reality, perhaps even something of eternity, realizes itself. End quote. I read the entire issue, then flip to the back cover and see an ad for the SPU MFA program and apply in a whim. I get in, and copies of image start inconspicuously showing up on my door. I read the poems and essays in between books and during lunch breaks as a substitute teacher, like a forager hoarding exotic berries. I move to New York to intern for a literary agent and bomb out seven months later, then stumble into a high school teaching gig back in Chicago. Within a year, I'm standing at the front of the classroom, listening. What's the thesis? I ask them. What's the heart? To make a donation, go to imagejournal.org donate. In the span of Gina Oshner's career, she's written fiction that covers a wide spectrum of style, subject matter, and geographical setting, ranging from more traditional realism to ghost stories, folklore, and fable. She's the author of four books, most recently the novel The Hidden Letters of Velta B, which The Guardian called One Part Post-Soviet Insanity to Three Parts Magical Realism. Oshner returns often to Eastern Europe as a backdrop for her stories, dipping frequently into the fables and myths of those regions. Though she hails from Oregon, it's hard to believe that she didn't grow up in one of these Ukrainian or Russian towns, listening to stories passed down through generations and getting lost in that wild part of the world. Greg Wolf sat down with Gina in a slightly echoey cabin on Whidbey Island here in Washington during the Seattle Pacific University MFA residency. If you roll your eyes at fairy tales, I suspect that you might find something valuable in this interview. We live in a world where we glorify technology and a kind of rational, scientific way of seeing the world. And in, in fiction, I know that, you know, raw realism is often considered to be like the really grown-up way of writing. And we tend to treat things like fairy tale or myth or folklore as maybe childish or childlike. But somehow... I feel like that isn't a problem for you. You you may even like that aspect of it. I love it. And so if I'm childish, so be it. But um, I'm, I'm seeing um, wonderful writers, great writers, weaving and blending folktale and, and mythology. And I think of how Angela Carter, in a very unapologetic way, would take an old tale that she figured her audience would recognize, Red Riding Hood, 
Bluebeard, whatever it was, and she would retell it and, and um, you know, make it new and make it wonderful and do so with such rich and Byzantine language that you just, you marveled at, at what language can do, but also the power of story and how an old story still speaks to us today. You know, I, I know Angela Carter is a really super brilliant writer, very sophisticated in what she does, but in some ways, isn't she just trying to restore some of the darkness and ambiguity and, and you know, just mysteriousness of some of those old tales? I, I kind of feel like part of this relentless process of modernity is to to kind of disnify everything and to you know return make things more childish than childlike and i know that you you know your use of these elements your interest in the stories and um involves an awareness of pretty tough realities of experience you know whether sexual or political or relational between siblings or generations so um, not to glorify darkness for itself but how do you how have you tried to listen to the to the deep music of these really old stories right yeah i, I like that deep music of the old stories and, and there's a, there's a phrase in songs i wish i could remember the citation but it says i will sing a dark parable and i just hang on to that um you're right. There's there's been a complete disnification of so many of our our old old stories, and, and the beauty of what Carter did is she reminded us that they were never meant to be that antiseptic or clean. They were very messy, untidy tales, and they were supposed to be because it, they allowed the listener to problem solve and work things out. The darkness in their world around them, they could they could identify it in in the story um, that they were hearing and place and insert themselves in that story and, and in that way be a part of that world and not a part of that world. And so it was very therapeutic, I think, and it had a had a instructive purpose, a therapeutic purpose, almost a spiritual purpose. And I, and I think um, Carter and, and many people like her who recognize that importance are, are restoring darkness in the best sense of the word to those tales. And I want to do the same thing, not because I'm just a fan of darkness for its own sake, but I, I think it is inauthentic, it is saccharine, it is, it is false um, to, to tell a tale without those other elements that, that we know ring true, this is what life is really like. Um, people do harm one another with great intentionality and deliberation and cruelty. Um, there, there are uh, many ugly, ugly things that happen in war when one ter when one army occupies another country, and, and this is something that Latvians had to talk about, and they had to do so through euphemism, and that's where their tales and their old old songs, their dianas, uh, were so useful and important to them. Right now, <clears throat> you're referring to your most recently published novel, The Hidden Letters of Velta B, and I know in that book, I was surprised because. You know, a lot of what fairy tales and folklore lend themselves to, as you say, is this kind of deep psychic, uh, therapeutic wrestling with, with difficult issues that are scary and, and you know, often are things that we go into denial about. And that they these stories help us to, in a sense, work through them. I think what I was surprised most about by the novel was, 
just how political it is in the sense that you really um, do grapple with the legacies of the occupation, but not only the occupation, but the various ethnicities that are involved, issues that are very relevant right now, like, you know, people from other places and other ethnicities coming to live in our midst. And there's a whole element of there's a Jewish family that lives across the street from the protagonist family. So did you feel like that was a, a step uh, in a new direction for you, that where you were getting a little more willing to grapple with directly political historical issues and not just spiritual psychic issues? Or have you been doing this all along? I think this was a new step for me, and I didn't, didn't undertake the novel with the idea, gosh, I'm, I'm going to tackle something political this time. It's just as I started talking to people, doing interviews, you know, reading more about the history, it just became clear. You cannot set a story in Latvia. And I'm, I'm suspecting you can't set a story anywhere anymore without having some element of, of politics creep in because it's just part of being human, um, but especially uh, especially relevant there. Right. And then it wasn't such a leap to see, you know, as a reader, as a writer, how it might apply to things here in the United States. Yeah. So, I mean, the things that you feel drawn to, it, it, from my point of view as a reader... Um, are often what might be called pre-modern. We've, we've been saying this all along, but I think what, what I'm curious about is, um, you know, not just these are, these are things that are not just curiosities, um, but they, they feel in a way that their very existence is potentially therapeutic to, to a society that is all too modern. I mean, what have we lost that, that, um, that, that this, I mean, is it a is it is it is it a loss of the imagination of our ability to to look at the world and see it enchanted? Have we do we live in too disenchanted um, a world? And, and is that what what appeals to you, or what what elements of of the pre modern sensibility are so you know attractive to you as a writer? Well, when I was in graduate school, the word postmodern was the big word in. We were taught what deconstructionism was and to de deconstruct everything so that um, a sentence that could have real meaning and value, by the time we were done with it, we're, we had wrenched meaning and value out of every word until there was nothing left. Nothing means anything. And so we were writing dyspeptic stories that left us with, with uh, no response except to sort of shrug and wince and go, oh, well, it doesn't mean anything, does it, really? And at some point, I, I just kind of resisted against that and started writing um, ridiculously. I realized juvenile, jejun kinds of stories in which people look at the world with wonder and awe. And I remember going in for, for the oral defense, and, and, and someone said to me at the, the round table, of, and, and I know everything's on the line here, this, is, this determines whether or not I get the degree, how I, how I respond to these answers. And someone said, you are ridiculously, obscenely optimistic. And I said, yes. <laughs> you owned it. <laughs> and I had a vision of that degree just going up in smoke. <laughs> and they said, that's a rather naive answer. <laughs> and so I thought, if you're going to blow it, go out big. And I said, yes. <laughs> and they dismissed me. And usually it takes about 20 minutes for the 
for, for deliberation, and then you get the word yay or nay. Well, I was kept in the hall waiting two and a half hours. Oh. <laughs> and believe me, was I ever praying, is that not even optimistic? I don't care. Yes, it was. <laughs> but uh, finally, they came out and they said, well, we're passing you anyway. <laughs> but the point being, I, I um, resist the postmodern stance in which everything is a joke within a joke at other people's expense. Um, I wanted to create characters who, who they wrestled with the world around them. Honestly, they saw their own faults. They saw the faults in the world, and yet they also could see things that inspired true gratitude within them, wonder and awe. And that I suppose that is pre-modern. Yeah, uh, that requires imagination. I suppose in another way, given our interests as Image Journal and, and what we're all about as an organization, is that a lot of this uh, way of looking at the world is inherently open to the transcendent, to the reality of an unseen world that, that does impact people, can change people, uh, can be discovered and explored. And so... Um, do you feel like that's a, a way that allows a kind of genuine grappling with religious issues to to become credible in, in a work of fiction? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot there that you just said, but um, yes. Um, simple answer, yes. And, and mysteries at the heart of it. Um, that, that we can't always know everything, but it is the attempt to grapple with it honestly. Um, that is the journey. Yeah, I mean, I know that there are characters that struggle with issues of faith and doubt in, in Hidden Letters, mm -hmm. and there are characters that are atheists, the mother's an atheist, mm -hmm. um, the daughter's a, a kind of believer, the father's very devout. There's kind of really a range of characters, mm -hmm. relationships to religion. The, of course, the, the Jewish family has their own set of issues and of course the tension between Christianity and Judaism plays an important role in the book um, I mean I think what you really show is the way that um, that the struggle with faith the struggle with faith and with doubt um, is part of how people make sense of the world how they mm. they can find hope and 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 believe in the possibility of transformation and healing because of course Latvia is so wounded so broken Absolutely. And so it seemed important to me to have different characters on that range, but on the faith range. Someone who was an atheist and just saw no reason to believe in a God that seemed absolutely absent from her, her world. To, to the father character, who is a very devout Baptist, though, though he does like to drink. And then <laughs> the daughter, who is sort of wavering in between the two and, and hoping the mother will have some kind of faith and just so worried that she won't. Um, but doubt is, you know, knocking on each of their doors at every point along the way. And I, I do think, you know, doubt um, doubt shapes faith. You can't have one without the other. You, you can't have an unexamined faith. Mm. Now, since we're talking about this novel and the title contains this phrase, hidden letters, I mean, I know there's a certain mystery associated with them that you don't want to, room with a spoiler, mm -hmm. but um, they're interesting. They're kind of mysterious, gnomic mm -hmm. 
letters from this relative of the family. Do you want to just tease us with a little sense of what you were trying to do there? Well, yes. I think that when people sustain trauma, they have to create a story that they can tell that allows them uh, to reference the trauma without having to relive it completely. And so coded language, euphemism, um, imagery that doesn't make sense but would have meaning to, to the person telling or writing the story, um, which just cloaks the truth, cloaks actual historical event in one more layer of, of um, fabricated kind of mystery. And, and it's a real, as someone said to me, this is a real actual problem in Latvia because we have people who experience things, they know things, but they're not telling their children because they don't want to upset their children. But their children need to know. Mm -hmm. They need to know what happened. Now, for people, aspiring writers and artists who are interested in how they may be drawn like you are to myth, folklore, fairy tale, these fundamental structures... Um, there's what, sort of, do you have advice for sort of what to do and not to do at home? Like, don't do this at home. I mean, I know that there's this very powerful drive uh, among Christians to to think that the fantasy model kind of crude imitations of Tolkien are really mm -hmm. the way to go. And that does seem a little bit close to what you're doing, but somehow your approach feels, um, I don't know, it just doesn't feel as thin as that. You seem to be able to draw on these thicker, more complicated uh, narratives and and not sort of knock off. So how does, I mean, if you want to involve the realm of the magical or the mysterious, don't you have to really be good at describing the world as it's actually seen and yes. experienced in a tactile way. So what would you say to writers who may be drawn to yeah. to have fun and play with the unusual but uh, need to somehow anchor it in, in a literary way? Yes, I would say read Flannery O'Connor's Mystery and Manners. She addresses this, this, this um, issue in, in a very in a wonderful way. And she says, you must work out of your senses. You must employ and invoke the five senses when, when writing. And if you're going to write the magical, the strange, fantasy, science fiction, uh, then even more so, that physical world has to be established um, and has to be made real. It has to be given weight and extension, she says. So, so that air that the characters breathe has to be um, it has to be able to sustain that, that whole atmosphere you're trying to create. So, um, yes, working out of sensory detail um, and significant detail and description is, is key. So really developing a keen eye and an ear is, is, is um, critical. And I think that's why she, she recommended that everybody take up drawing, not because people all want to aspire to be artists, um, visual artists, but because it will force them to see differently. Um, so I wouldn't say, oh, don't write a fantasy. Don't, don't try to do what, what um, Tolkien did. But, but I would say, do it in your own way. Mm -hmm. you know, develop your own sensibility, your own aesthetic. Right. Uh, not, don't be, don't appropriate off the shelf some, someone else's imaginative structure. Mm -hmm. Um, dig deep 
into yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how did that happen in your own life? Were you mm-hmm. do you feel like it took you a long time to find that true you know, oceanarian vision or <laughs> you know, did or was it a gift that was given to you early on? Oh, no, not a gift given to me, but I was a great reader in, in the sense that that I read, read, read everything I could get my hands on. And so that really helped me develop a, a sense of, well, what am I interested in? And from an early, early age, I was interested in the Old Testament because that's where a lot of the miracles are. And they're wacky miracles, too. I mean, some of them just don't make any sense. And I love that. I love that. Why does God do that? Because he can. I love that. And, and then the folk tales. So that was kind of a found, the, the two pillars in, in the foundation. But it probably took, because I was not writing the way I write now in graduate school, so it probably took seven or eight years to, to get to, um, uh, to find my way into material that I felt like, aha, I can sink my feet into this soil, and this is what I want to do. And at all times I was reading other, other people writing, um, Kelly Link, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Milorad Pavic, um, um, magic realists and, and, and lyric maximalists. I know some of your early stories were set closer to home, but even there you were finding both the ethnic roots and certain kind of, you know, people who are working class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know that I'm going to get this right, but I feel like fishermen mm-hmm. and and lumberjacks mm-hmm. and you know people who were close to nature to the earth mm-hmm. and i know you've been going further afield lately do you think you'll come back a little bit ever to oh, yes. things closer to home <laughs> yes i've got a collection almost done i'm privately dubbing it the brooding creepy oregon stories nice <laughs> um some some creepy creatures, some ghostly appearances, but yes, we're back in the realm of, of loggers and fishers and people working close to the earth. Wonderful. And do we have any expectation of when we might see that? Soon, I hope. Soon, soon. Okay. You know. <laughs> well, you can be sure that Image will be all over that in our email newsletter, Image Update, and on our website and, and all. So, Gina, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thanks for taking the time. And we're so grateful to all that you give to to Image and to the SPU MFA program. So take care and we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Image Podcast. And thanks to Gina Oshner for joining us. I'm Paul Anderson.